Uh, if you'll flip over to the next page, uh, our sermon text, uh, Genesis chapter 40 through 41, we're picking up this story of Joseph as we are finishing the book of, of Genesis. We left off last week with Joseph being um, a blessing, and he's in Egypt, and he was a blessing to Potiphar's house, and then he was uh, betrayed by Potiphar's wife, and he was thrown into prison, and we're picking up the story here where he is in prison. And I'm sure he's ready to get out, so we are going to, I'm going to cover two chapters. We're going to go through 40 and 41. So what, what you have in your worship folder is a condensed version. I've chopped out as much as I can while keeping the story moving just for the sake of being able to get through it all. But if you have a Bible and would like to look at it, then I would welcome you to uh, just be follow along and see what is actually going on and the parts that are missed. Before I read it, so we, one of the things about preaching through Joseph is there's, there's a real blessing to this and having multi, going through multiple chapters at the same time. Um, and one of that is that it's really one big unified story. And so we are coming into a story with a particular theme um, that's really dealing with the issue of one, of suffering and of hardship and also of God's sovereignty uh, over all of it in the background at the same time. And it really is a beautiful story about how God can and does use even hardship to bring about good. And this really is what the whole story is about. Because when we get to the end, then Joseph is going to say this line, this famous line to um, his brothers, that they intended, what they intended for harm, then God intended for good. And it's been, in studying, a chance to just sit down and reflect on what it is like to be in hardship and um, to deal with these kinds of issues. And some of you might be in a, similar, a place like that this morning, and this is a really good theme to sit down and talk about, um, about hardship and suffering and grappling with God's sovereignty. Not everybody is likely to be in that place this morning, um, and there are bigger things going on of just how um, God positions himself towards his children and the position that he wants out of them back towards him. And also, anytime we're talking about this, there is likely somebody sitting very near to you that is in the middle of one of these situations. So even as this, this, some of these hardships, if they seem far away from you and not really applicable to your own life, these are the experiences of the people of God. And one of the things it means when we come together to worship is we are all coming here with very different situations, facing many things all together, here at the same time as one body. And we grapple with both the things that we see in our own lives, and we also grapple with the things that we see in our neighbor's lives, and we all together are able to look God, look to God and what He is all about at the same time. So that being said, let's uh, go, bef- go to our text, and we'll read starting in chapter 40, um, and read the select verses all the way through 41. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief, cup- chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And one night they both dreamed. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. 
And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hands as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention to me, me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. The chief baker said to Joseph, I also had a dream. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Joseph will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the, chief, the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. In the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this... There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Anaseth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together briefly. Father, we again ask that we are dependent on you to work in us. We are dependent on you to teach us, to teach us what you would have us to discern from this passage, and even more so, we are dependent on you to move into our hearts and to help us to see you in a way that we would actually be changed. And our fear of all of these other things would be moved to a fear of you. And we humbly ask that you would do that for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're moving through this, and there are several repeated themes, particularly of affliction and hardship um, that we see in the life of Joseph. But each of these different sections kind of have their own flavor and their own character. So last week, when we looked at Joseph in Potiphar's house, we saw the theme of blessing, um, him being a blessing to Potiphar in his house and to the guard in the prison and that how the author is signaling that this is Joseph is God's man that he is he is chosen and he is put here and who he is using to continue the story that he has started with Abraham that this is not something that is um, separate from what God is up to is actually right in the middle of God's purposes not just for Joseph but also for the people of God and continuing. And in this section, we have some of the similar themes of hardship, but there's a different flavor here, and that I think the main thing that we're looking at is the posture of Joseph, and particularly how God changes Joseph's relationship with God, his posture and how he looks to God, and his posture on where his confidence and hope is actually placed. And thus, as you know, I was thinking about this um, if, you've, if you're a parent, you definitely know this, but if you ever tried to put a shirt on somebody else, like on a little kid or if maybe an elderly parent or a jacket or something like this, there's this, you know, thinking of this issue with posture, what happens every time is they'll try to stick their arm up and it's going to miss the hole and come out of the wrong hole and they're going to insist and keep pushing it in the same place and going to get nowhere. And what you have to do is like get their arm, like karate chop their elbow so that it'll bend and bring it down <laughs> so that it can be put back up, you know, in the place we're supposed to be. And that I think is what's happening with Joseph. I've, I've titled the sermon Humiliation and Exaltation, and that is just a description of the, the path that God is taking Joseph on. It is also the words we use to describe Jesus and the path that he was taken on um, by his father for us, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, but this applies to more than just the circumstances. And we see really bad circumstances here, and we feel good when we see the good circumstances that these relate to, but there is something going on in the midst of all of that, and that God is actually busy at work shaping Joseph's heart that he's changing something on the inside as well as on the outside. And that inside posture of Joseph is important. Um, And it is important to what God was actually going to do in him and how he was going to use him. So in order to see how God did this, this, there's two main points here. One, we're just going to look at the theme of humiliation and then exaltation at the end. Um, Several sub-points of that. Um, I'll try to keep to keep us all on track wherever we are to be helpful. Um, But that's the big structure of what we're going to look at. So let's start and look at the first part of Joseph's humiliation. 
And when I use this word, let me just say a word about it. And when we hear the word humiliation, we often think of somebody um, taking advantage of us or embarrassing us or abuse or some kind of thing like that. That's not what it means here. That's not what we mean when we talk about Jesus. And that's not God's agenda with Joseph was to just make him crawl and to feel embarrassed. What's happening here is a process of becoming humble of a posture of becoming humble and actually seeing um, the truth of who God is and who Joseph is in relation to God and his plan clearly, and so that he can actually look to and depend on God in the way that he should. So there's a few ways that he does this. In the first place, in this path to humiliation, is he is going to demonstrate to Joseph before anything else that he is actually completely out of control of his own destiny. And that is important because control is an important thing to us. Um, And this is one of the hardest lessons that we have to learn, even as the people of God. And let me show you in here what I mean. Um, Where Joseph started, let's go back and remember where this story began. So this story began before anything bad had happened to Joseph. And he was given a couple dreams. And these dreams were really good news to Joseph. His story started at a really high note with this promise of God through a dream that there's a blessing that's going to come to him where his brothers are going to bow down to him, the sun, moon, and stars. Um, Big things are going on here with Joseph. So he's excited about this. He tells all his brothers, and that's one of the things that gets him in trouble in the first place. But how he gets there was a complete mystery to Joseph. When he first had these dreams, it seemed like things are going to go really well for me. This is really good news. So the promise of blessing from God, he took to be a sign that his life was going to be characterized all the way through by this blessing. But what happens? That's not exactly how it went out. From there, he experiences nothing but hardship after hardship after hardship after hardship. And he says something really interesting, and this is, I'm really going to camp out on this verse as the key to all of this. After, and if you look here in your text that I printed for you in verse 8, I want you to notice the change of where he was in the beginning to what he says right here. He sees that these two guys in prison have had dreams, and they say to Joseph, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. In other words, they don't belong to me, and they don't belong to you or any other human. They belong to God, so please tell them to me. And this is made more clear when he gives the same uh, answer to Pharaoh. If you look down in verse 16 of 41, Joseph answered Pharaoh the same request, It is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And that's just, so step in Joseph's shoes here. He has experienced other dreams, dreams of good news that he thought and he was excited about them. And now he is looking at somebody else who is also having a dream. And his answer to him is, you know, it's not me. Like, I don't, I've missed it before. Like, it is not on my ability to be able to interpret and say how this road is going to be. So he has been put in a position of where he is, has to recognize that in terms of knowing how God is actually going to bring about the blessing that he has promised, 
He might know that, but the pathway there is not a guarantee and it is a mystery to him. He's been humbled at his lack of knowledge of what God is up to. And he's also been humbled in another way, not only in his lack of knowledge of what God is up to, but he's been in the other side of this, um, in his own um, humble statements about God being the only one who can interpret dreams. He's actually saying something about his own capability to affect that story at the same time. It's more than just knowledge, but even his own participation in the role is somewhat, um, is very limited. And we've seen that come about already in the story about when he was in Potiphar's house. That he has been a faithful guy. He's worked hard. He's done the things that God has asked him to do. And still, um, all of the good that he experiences continues to be met with hardship. And the blessing that God has promised is still delayed. Again and again and again, the path gets longer and longer and longer. And the, the promises are delayed and delayed and delayed, no matter what he does. And this particularly comes out clearly in this, um, what he says here in verse 23. So he, interpret, he interprets these dreams and he asks the cupbearer, when you get out, remember me so that you will, I will, it'll, what goes well with you will come back to me and I will end up being able to get out of here. In 23, he says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So again, all of his best efforts and his scheming is able to affect the story in a very limited way. And let me say about a word about what this is not saying. I think that is a key verse, and this is a key point both in seeing Joseph's role before and his scheming to get out of the situation in prison. This is not saying that what we do doesn't matter. I think the last chapter actually affirms the opposite. And in a way, this is showing us that like, it is appropriate, even in times of suffering and discomfort, to try to get out of it. Like, that's not like this is, this is just a good thing in and of itself to be in a season of affliction. But it's actually appropriate to work hard and to, to do good for ourselves and to other people. But the, uh, the ability that we have to affect the big story of what God is working in our lives is very, very small. And so this is the first stage of, of Joseph's humiliation, his humbling before God, as he goes from thinking everything is going to be great to all of a sudden being shown that he is completely out of control, not only to know what is going to happen, but to actually be able to bring the story to a conclusion in the way that he wants. It is not up to him to be able to shape his own story where he goes. And what does that do? So not only is he out of control, but it also leads him to see, as this, final, this is the pivot point of where God is actually working a change in Joseph, but that that actually positions him to be able to see something and to lean into God's story in a way that he couldn't before. And that where he was all an optimist without real tact of just, you know, you know, things are going to go real great with me without the ability to think about other people and how that would affect them. He is in a position where he is able to say, it is not with me, but I do know something. 
I do know who is in control of this story. It is not me, and it is with God. And I actually know him. So from that position of humility, he is able to actually enter into the lives of these guys and to, and to with his own self out of the way, he is able to become a conduit of who is actually in control and where true power actually comes from. He does the same thing with Pharaoh. With Pharaoh, he says, it is not me who will do this, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then later on, as Pharaoh grapples with this, then he says to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, since God has done this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Joseph's wisdom comes through his humility. And that his humility gets himself out of the way so that he can have eyes to see what God is up to. And it's from that point where he understands the true dependence, his own lack of ability to impact the story, his own dependence on God, he is actually able to point these other guys in that direction and that they can actually see the only place where they are going to get an answer at the same time. So you see how this change of character works has worked here in Joseph, that when he is shown he is totally out of control, then he is shown where the only place um, where control can come from, then he is actually able to minister in a way that he never could before. He has something tangible that he has to offer people. He has something that is dependable that he can offer others of where help can actually come from. That's the first thing we see with Joseph is this, this process of humiliation, um, both in his story of being out of control and his utter dependence on God. But there's another side to this. And let's look at what God did through this um, in his exaltation of Joseph. And I just want to say, this is the, one of the things that's really tricky about these Old Testament stories, is we are looking at a story about Joseph. And this is a particular way that God interacted with Joseph at a particular time. It is not a guarantee of how he's going to deal with us in the particulars. Um, And it's not a guarantee that it's going to go exactly like this. But I do think this is going to show us something about the character of God and the, the pattern of how God works, about what he is ultimately headed towards with all of his people, And then we're going to see after that that there are some special things about that as he shows that. And then he brings Jesus to us at the right time and how he ties the whole story together. So that being said, before we start to talk about Joseph and how um, his story turns around. You see what happens here is God uses his humiliation in the first place to change his posture. So he's actually able to enter into the lives of others. And he is not so consumed with himself anymore. And this is a neat thing, just, you know, it's, when someone comes in and says to you, um, I, I had a really weird dream last night. Like, your first thought is not, ooh, tell me more. It is like, um, no, thank you. Um, but Joseph does that. I, I just, that's just a little thing to observe. I think it's neat that Joseph leaned in here and he said, you know, tell me about your dream. I want to hear about it. Um, but more than that, his exaltation is he does this, he is, he is humble before God. He sees clearly how helpless he is before his plan. 
it actually turns out that his humiliation is what God is using in order to exalt him. If he had not done these things, if he had not been led to see that, he would not been in the position to where he could say to Pharaoh, this is who interprets dreams, this is where true good comes from. Because he did, this was actually, his humiliation was what God used in order to pivot his story to where he got Joseph exactly where he wanted him at the right time. So the humiliation was not a waste. And it was not mean in Joseph's case. It was actually an important part of the story of what God was doing. That the humiliation actually was the tool through which God used to exalt Joseph. But the flip side of that is also true. And when we get to the end of the story, look at these words when Joseph names his children after all of this. Starting in verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What we see here, I'm sure Joseph didn't forget what happened to him. I'm sure that he didn't have moments of anxiety and thinking about what the events that his life went through. That's not what this is saying. But what he's saying is that the end of the story, the exaltation that God is up to, what he is working in Joseph, is actually so disproportionate in a good way to the humiliation that he experienced that it completely changes the way he views that humbling process. So where at the same time, Joseph saw that his humbling was actually the tool through which God exalted him. That God's exalting him is also the tool through which God, in a way, erased and dealt with his humbling at the same time. It's a really neat story. It's cool that God did this for Joseph, I think. Um, it is, and again, remembering from last week that this is not just what he did for Joseph, that this is what he did for the whole people of God. And that how he used Joseph, he put them in the right place at the right time so that he could be a redeemer for his people. So that his people would go free. And they would always have this story of Joseph as a part of their own identity, as that this is what God did. That we have a tangible example of God's goodness and his deliverance that's not just a concept, but it is a real thing that God did in real history. And this is where, so I want to transition there. We've been talking about Joseph a lot to talk about what this means for us because we are far removed um, from this situation, uh, from this time, and from this audience. And in a way, we are sitting with Israel in the middle of the wilderness Um, looking at what God did in history in order to preserve the people of God. And there is a sign in that of both God's power to use even affliction to accomplish good and the promise of the future hope that God's exaltation is actually enough to deal with far more abundantly all the affliction that you and I could ever face. As hard to believe as that is, with the own things you know in your story, even the things that you know, there is no way I will ever forget this event or this thing or this word that was said. It will always be a part of me. 
that there is this promise from God that what he is up to with his people is, goes abundantly, disproportionately over anything we could ever suffer. That what he is working is actually good. But this is why this is challenging. So where we are sitting in here, where this is the case in my life, this is the case I'm sure of many of us in this room, is we are like Joseph in the way that we are disappointed by all kinds of things. Like just as Joseph started out in a high place and then things didn't go well for him, like that's really disappointing. And the, long, the more I think about it, um, the more I experience this dis- disappointment is one of the most powerful shapers of how we view ourselves, how we view life, um, and what we do. I mean, we will do anything to avoid being disappointed. Because when we are disappointed, then we are completely out of control. And we really feel that. And just an example. So my wife and I, we don't, Lauren is really good about sharing food. Um, she's a very generous person. I hate sharing food. Like... Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of the main, really the main reason is because when I eat food, then I know how much is there. I know how long the enjoyment is going to last. And I know when it's going to end. And if someone takes a bite of my food, then that's just a little piece of disappointment that's been <laughs> put in there. Like I would rather eat less food and not be disappointed than to be up and excited about what I'm going to eat and then be let down. And I know that's silly, but there are so many ways that we do this. I mean, we will do anything to feel like we are in control enough that we will not be disappointed. We do this through food. We do this through alcohol. We do this from all kinds of habits. We do this through exhaust, through um, like physical exertion and distraction. Um, We do this through uh, relationships. Um, Anything that we can do to distract ourselves that we can feel good, um, to feel like we are in control. We can, and we do this, here's another thing. Blame shifting is one of the main ways we can see that we're actually dealing with feeling out of control and being disappointed. Because when it's someone else that's at fault, then it's like, that is much more of a manageable situation. There is a reason for the disappointment. There is a reason why we're in the situation that we're in. Because if we can't do that, then we're totally out of control. It's like, this can just happen, and this is acceptable. Many of us in here are in places where we know what it's like to be forgotten and to be left. To be able to cry out, that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like Joseph was sitting in the prison and he was forgotten. To be in a place of deep darkness, to have the dark night of the soul, to be depressed, um, all kinds of ways, to be lonely. Like the things that Joseph is facing, and this is why uh, where it is easy to relate to this story, is because this is descriptive of our, our lives. This is descriptive of the things we're afraid of, and it also describes our behavior why we're doing the things we do to get rid of this, these realities in our life. And this is a hard move. Like this, What this story is saying to us by an example of what God has done in the past through Joseph is that we are out of control 
and that God is not out of control. And somehow, if we could choose, then we would choose, if we could know what God is up to, we would actually choose for Him to be in control and not for us to be in control. That what He is working out is a good thing. But this is the struggle with dealing with passages like that. That that is very comforting and that that is really good news in a lot of ways. But it is really hard to believe. One of the things about being in a position of suffering is it actually is a blinding experience. That the more we experience it, the more... um, energy we have, the more fight we have, the more all those things to actually hang on to the truth. And those things of like hearing that God is in control, he's in the middle of this, seem like very far away realities. That they sound good and we hope is true, but yet we shrink in and of ourselves and we try to cope in every way possible because we just don't believe it. Like we don't see it. Like we can't. We don't have the strength to, to get in the middle of that and to really take that to heart and believe it. And this is why it is so important that this is not the end of the story. Because Joseph is an example to Israel, and he was an example to us. But he was also, he was a part of a bigger story that God was working, and where he would do something really, really special through Jesus in a way that he did not do through Joseph at the time. And that rather from dictate the story from afar, Jesus actually took on flesh, And he took on the same kind of disappointment. And he took on the same kind of affliction. He took on the same call to obedience in the middle of it that you and I face every day. So rather than saying this to you, he is both saying this to you and he is also saying that I am in the middle of this with you at the same time. Christ's presence with us is the key to actually being able to live and endure in the middle of grappling with these promises. Because what Christ has done, is the reason why we read this passage in Philippians chapter 2, is saying that where we falter on a daily basis and we freak out um, and we lose ourselves and we grapple onto all other things, what Christ did is he took on all of that so he could know Not just what the end of the story is, but what it is actually like to be in the middle of the story. So as you live with him, as he is with you in the midst of it, there is a unique communion between beings that really know what it is like to suffer. And to suffer deeply. In addition to that, Christ also was obedient to the Father to the point of death. In that... He did not waver. He did not look to other things. But he persevered to the end in a way that you never will. And he did that so that as he is with you, we are both defined by his life in the aspect of suffering. The same pattern that God works out is, it works itself out in our lives as well. It is a life that is not roses, but is often defined by Christ's suffering. But... It is also defined by Christ's obedience for you. As Christ went ahead of you, as he fulfilled the Father's will, as he did not give up when he was in the wilderness, but he continued, then as Christ is with you, he both knows what it is like 
And he is also the covering for you that your life can be defined before God by his obedience in addition to his suffering. And what does that mean for us in the end? That means that when you feel out of control and you know that you're running your life off the rails trying to deal with it, that rather than being distant from God and trying to find a way to fix it and make it right, then you can look to him and say, God, I am out of control. And he can look at you and say, I know. And I'm still here with you in this moment. Because the things that we do, they are destructive. Natural responses also bring natural consequences. That the posture of humility and faith, they do matter to us. But the good news of the gospel is that as we grapple with these things, we don't grapple with them alone, and we don't grapple with them as people who are lost and who are actually on the precipice about to fall off the end. We are grappling with them right next to our Savior, who knows what it is like and who has a hold on us much stronger than the hold that we have on him. And he knows both the end of the story and the process that's going to take to get there. And so as he holds us, the promise is that just as he was poured out all of the glory and the honor of the Son, who is perfectly obedient, then he will do the same thing for you. If God would do this for Joseph and the people of God, how much more will he do this for the beloved Son, who walked his path with dignity and honor never wavering. And it is that hope, that kind of abundance, that is on offer here to you. And that is why God, for all of us, wants to work in us the same posture of humility and looking away from ourselves into him. Because when we do that, then we are actually in a position to see what God is up to through Jesus in us. Let's pray together that God would actually work this out in our lives, that we would be able to believe it. Your Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope of the cross that he is for us. Thank you that you are in control of our lives. We pray that you would have mercy on us as we struggle with that and as we buck against it. But we pray that you would overwhelm us with the goodness of the treasure that you have offered us in Christ, that we might be able to let go and that we might be at peace, even in the middle of the times of trouble. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.